Hello everyone, I'm Luke Ryan and this is The Curious Audience, the podcast that explores how movies mirror our reality, how life imitates art, and all things in between. I'm so excited to bring you this week's episode. For a young boy, I have been fascinated by dinosaurs and now my son shares that curiosity. This week, I spoke with Dr. Patrick Smith from the Australian Museum in Sydney. Patrick is the technical officer and research assistant at the museum and has been involved in many explorations for fossils. You will be surprised at what Patrick feels is the movie that mirrors his reality. Have a listen. You said you've got a T-Rex? Uh-huh. Say again. <laughs> we have a T-Rex. Patrick, digging up fossils, is that a fairly simple process or is it much more... Um, intensive than we all believe what's the process for digging up a, a fossil yeah it is an in-depth process when trying to find bones out in the field and trying to collect them and bring them back um what you see in movies is generally only part of the process of course you do see people often so say the opening of jurassic park you'll see people excavating mm -hmm. and you genuinely will do that you will excavate a site you will sort of dig it up because a lot of the time when you find particularly large dinosaurs marine reptiles which are the more common thing that we found in australia uh, you'll often have to, or even things like the protodon, so megafauna, you'll often have to work out how much of the skeleton is there because, of course, you don't want to just find a single bone and go, take that back to the museum mm -hmm. and then miss the rest of the skeleton that might be there. And so what often is done is an excavation around the site to work out just how much of the animal is actually left. And then once the sort of perimeter of the fossil is found, what we then do is we'll do what's called trenching. We'll dig trenches around certain subsections of the bone and we'll map out where each of those bones were placed in the field so we know exactly how they were in the field, so where they came from and what they were doing next to each other. And then when we create trenches, we dig these sort of what are called pedestals. Basically, they just look like little mushrooms. So we dig around the bone, the bone is on the top surface, and we dig down and basically dig underneath the bone. And as we do that, we leave a little bit of rock underneath, like a little stalk, and then later on we'll plaster jacket, we'll put a big jacket of plaster around it and that just holds all the rock and, and the bone together. And then we snap off that little pedestal at the bottom and then flip it over, plaster cast that, and so we have a, a large plaster jacket around the specimen. And then we take that into the museum and then we remove it from the jacket and very carefully prepare away the rock from the bone. It sounds like the bones are quite brittle. They are, yes. So when they've turned to mineral, so bone itself is actually quite brittle without the protein that we have in our bones, because our bone is actually a mixture of both protein and a mineral. Okay. And when you have that protein in it, you can actually see this yourself. If you get a chicken bone, for example, and place it in something like an acid, what will happen is it will take away all the mineral component, which is calcium phosphate or appetite is the mineral, and it will actually just leave all the protein. It will look like the bone is still there, but what it is is it's actually a protein coat or a protein sort of meshwork that the minerals grow in. And you can actually move it around. It becomes flexible. So if you get a chicken bone to do that, rather than being hard when it has the mineral in it, if you take all the minerals away, it becomes flexible. And vice versa, if you use some very specialised chemicals, you can actually take all the minerals, uh, the protein out and leave the mineral component there, and it actually becomes very brittle. And that's because minerals, by their na very nature, are generally brittle, particularly appetite. So when we see um, big dinosaur structures in museums where the, the bones have all been pieced together, I'm, I'm imagining because the bones are that brittle that that structure isn't the, the real bones that have been dug up. Are they like a mould of it? 
Um, in some cases, yes, and in some cases, no. So a lot of modern museums use casts. So what they'll do is they will cast the bone. So they'll make a fiberglass jacket for it, and then they will actually either pour plaster or other things into that cast and make a sort of a replica of that bone. And that's generally to make it lighter and also so it can be mounted by drilling holes through it and things like this rather than actually having to put supports, which are quite expensive to, to buy. Um, but having said that, some older museums, particularly those in, in England, for example, uh, do actually have often real bones on display. And that's because it was before they had these processes of fiberglass moulding and things like this. And so sometimes you will see real bones on display, but they're often held up by supports. And you'll often see that they have really, really heavy supports. And that's because bone is actually, when it turns into a fossil, it becomes a mineral, mm -hmm. particularly if it's impregnated by iron minerals. What that means is basically you get iron replacing some of the calcium, car calcium phosphate in their bone. The iron actually makes it even heavier again, and so you have to have really heavy supports. So if you ever see um, bones like, for example, those in the Natural History Museum in London, or what used to be there at least, uh, a lot of those actually were real bones that had heavy supports. So in, in a lot of the museums, we see the typical dinosaurs like the, the Triceratops and the Tyrannosaurus and, and the other well-known ones. Are there new species of dinosaurs that we're still finding to this day? Yeah, yeah. In fact, um, the number of dinosaurs being found, particularly the number of dinosaur species being found, uh, is increasing actually at an exponential rate. Uh, so there was a publication recently which looked into the number of species being named and they actually found that the number of species being named is increasing each year. In fact, it looks like it's roughly about a dinosaur species per week, I think was the wow. estimate that I saw last. Uh, which is quite a large number of, of dinosaurs being described. And it's been suggested that's because of things like movies like Jurassic Park, for example, <laughs> encouraging a generation of young kids to go into paleontology. In, in the dinosaur world, is there like a holy grail fossil that every paleontologist wants to find? Is there, is there that one thing that would just answer a question that everyone's looking for? Um, but in paleontology, there's also been a number of other holy grails of animals that aren't necessarily dinosaurs that give us real insights into how animals in the past were functioning or how animals evolved over time. Some great examples include some of the earliest fish from, in Australia, we have a, a unit of rock called the Gogo Formation in Western Australia. And some of the fossil fish found in that demonstrate the earliest examples of vertebrates, so backboned animals like ourselves, and things like fish and dogs and cats and uh, lizards and all sorts of other animals that have a backbone, demonstrates the first examples of them developing things like, for example, um, internal pregnancy, so things like internal fertilization, but also showing things like, for example, uh, the development of the brain case. So the first brain cases really preserved in the fossil record that are entirely um, preserved in three dimensions. So when it comes to finding fossils, and, and we see this depicted in movies sometimes, um, what's harder, finding fossils or finding funding to keep searching? <laughs> Very good question. Uh, um, so, depends on what you're looking for. Dinosaurs, it's actually relatively easy to get funding for, only because they're dinosaurs. Um, but if you're looking for a little invertebrates like myself, you're trying to convince people to fund you to look for things like fossil corals or fossil shellfish. It becomes very, very hard to actually um, know exactly how to sort of word that to somebody. Um, it's not impossible. Uh, you can do it, but it's, it's a bit more difficult. It also depends on the funding body. So in Australia, we have different funding bodies that fund research. Uh, things like the Australian Research Council, which funds uh, DECRAs and discovery grants and all sorts of things, sorts of money pots mm -hmm. 
that people can go and use to, to study these um, things like dinosaurs or other fossils. They're quite hard to get. They're generally quite competitive. But things like, for example, sometimes foundations often support, so things like at the Aramanga Museum, they have a foundation that supports their museum up there, or the Winton Museum also has their own foundation. They have foundations that support dinosaur research. So it depends on really what you're looking at. Um, finding fossils, however, can be quite difficult as well, but there's often little tips and tricks that you can use. Like, for example, a lot of paleontologists look at geological maps to work out where's the most likely place to find fossils. And when you're looking for fossils, is it do you, is there an opportunity for failure? Uh, yes, although generally we minimise that as much as possible. <laughs> so you've got limited funds, so exactly. you know you don't want to waste that yeah. opportunity. Yeah, exactly. So we don't want to waste the opportunities, and not only that, we'll often have backup ideas that we can sort of chase up. So a lot of the time, paleontologists will know the area that they're looking at like the back of their hand. Uh, they would have researched it for years and years and years. And so before they actually even step out into the field. And so they're well aware of where fossils are in that area, even if they're well-known ones. And so if they step out into the field and go to somewhere unknown, they might also step off to somewhere that is known as well to collect material as well they can also use for later study. You mentioned earlier about um, preserving dinosaur fossils so that they're not um, poached by other people. What's your personal opinion of fossils that are being sold um, on the market and people who are selling them? instead of giving them to museums or scientists? <laughs> That's a very controversial question. Um, the, it's it's hard one to say because, of course, you can't tar everybody with the same brush. You can't say some people are being completely evil or nasty. Of course, a lot of the time, people often collect fossils for various different reasons, uh, and sometimes they collect them for their own um, interest. And so I've often come across a lot of collectors that collect them just out of interest not really for financial gain. Though there are people that also have collected them for financial gain. In Australia, we have rules and regulations about uh, certain types of fossils in different states, and all each of the states of Australia have different rules and regulations. So people have to look them up when they go to those states and actually work out what those rules and regulations are. But in general, uh, when talking about sort of fossils being given to museums or not being given, I often ask people that have found fossils um, that are scientifically important, so new species or animals that we haven't even seen examples of before, so different forms of the species that we've, we've previously been uh, had described, so like juveniles or injured individuals or things like this. I've often asked people to donate those to museums, but I leave it up to them and I don't make judgments on whether people do or don't do things. Um, it's really up to the, the individual sort of opinion of whether they should hand it to the museum. Of course, it's a big loss to science if it can't be given to a museum, because of course, uh, in science, we actually can't write anything without giving a museum number to a specimen and saying that it's okay. stored in that institution. And that's to make it repeatable and testable. Uh, so if you're a scientist and I write, you know, that this thesis was described, I elect a specimen and say, this is the specimen that you have to compare it to if you want to say that you have my species. And so I put that into a museum and that makes it repeatable and testable. So if somebody else comes later on, they can actually look at the specimen that I described that species from and go, yes, I agree, or no, I don't, I don't think that's the species. If you had them in private collections, you wouldn't know where the specimens were and it would become not repeatable or testable anymore. So really, it's just more for science's sake that museums exist so that specimens can be there for people to repeat and test science. Have you ever seen a specimen in a private owner's collection or hands that you wish could have been 
um, in, in the museum so you could have done testing on it? Yes, definitely. I have seen that before. Um, and I've oh. asked the person to, to donate it to a museum. Um, in one circumstance, they said yes, but in another circumstance, they said no. Um, and that's up to the individual. Um, as I said, it's really a loss more for science than anything else if they can't be shown. And I do try and explain that to some people, but sometimes they, they have their own reasons for keeping specimens at their home. Now, when you watch um, dinosaur movies, and there, there's a ton to choose from, and there's, there's some like Jurassic Park that possibly touch more into the realism of it, and then there's others where, you know, realism is thrown out the window. Because you specialise in this industry, do you look at these movies and just tear them apart? Shake your head while you're watching it. <laughs> I actually love monster movies. <laughs> I'm one of these. I'm one of these funny people that love classic old movies. Um, so I mean, things like the original King Kong and things like that, and the original Lost World. Um, look, I mean, I watch movies like everybody else does. Watching them as fiction. Um, I suspect it would be a bit like a history buff watching something like the uh, or medieval his- history buff watching any of the Tolkien films, of course, or reading Tolkien. Um, you realise that there's an element of sort of fact in there, but also an element of fiction. A bit like watching any science fiction, really. Um, so if you watch Star Trek or anything like that, you sort of watch it with the mind that there is reality in there, but there's also a little bit of fiction to sort of help the story along. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I've got a few um, quickfire questions for you that I've just taken from common misconceptions about dinosaurs. So I'm hoping you can give us a quick answer to, to help clear up some of these ones. Sure. So, fire, oh, I've got the first one. So, were dinosaurs hot-blooded or cold-blooded? That's also a very controversial question. <laughs> um, so, the answer is really neither. Um, and the only reason the answer is neither is because the terms hot and cold-blooded are really vague. Um, they don't actually mean very much in science. Um, generally, we'll talk about animals being either polkiothermic or endothermic, which has more to do with metabolism. Mm-hmm. And really, the current research sort of uh, doesn't really give an answer, only because there's a lot of competing ideas that have come across from what evidence we've gathered. Um, Largely at the moment, there's a suggestion that they were probably more towards endothermic. People have called them a failed endotherm is one sort of suggestion. And what they mean by that is that they have sort of elements or traits, what we would call hot-blooded animals, warm-blooded animals like um, mammals or birds, but that they also lacked traits of those as well. But it's a bit hard to say because, of course, we don't have the metabolism preserved. We have sort of proxies of those. So we have sort of indirect evidence of of the metabolism, but no direct feature that would actually tell us the metabolism of dinosaurs. Okay. This next question kind of builds on that because it came from the same article. Um, Could brontosauruses and other tall, big, bulky dinosaurs run? (laughs) <laughs> well, so most of the big bulky dinosaurs like sauropods, uh, as a side uh, little effect, actually, if it were five or six years ago, I actually would have told you that brontosaurus didn't exist. Um, <laughs> it's only recently been uh, resurrected as a genus. It was actually synonymized, which means that the person who originally described it, they, others who later came along and looked at that specimen thought that it wasn't actually its own separate genus and actually synonymized it under a patasaur. Uh, and then for years and years, it's, that was the situation until just recently, actually, it was resurrected as a genus. And in fact, it was seen as to be slightly different from a patasaurus until it was called brontosaurus. But to answer the question, could uh, large sort of sauropods run? Uh, 
Possibly. There is suggestions from trackways that indicate they could run up to, at a stretch, maybe 30 kilometres, 20 to 30 kilometres per hour. Uh, however, that's only for small periods of time, of course. It wouldn't be a sustained period of long running. Um, but when we say running as well, it would be a bit like an elephant can run. So they have sort of long columnar-like limbs, and so they probably wouldn't have been able to sort of run in the sense of what we think of like a cheetah or a human running, but rather yeah. sort of a fast gait. Okay. <laughs> yeah, just just a different speed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, when you talk about Triceratops and the the massive um, headgear that they have, I'm not sure what that's called, the big um, armoured plating. They call it a frill, generally. A frill. Okay. Is that... Uh, for defence or is that for communication? Uh, so there's been a lot of suggestion and talk about the, that feature. Uh, early on it was largely suggested for defence, although some of the early ideas all suggest it may have been a muscle platform for its jaws. But um, more recently, and this idea has been gaining more traction, though it was initially sort of stated in the 60s and about 69, uh, was the idea that they were used for what's called a sexual display. So it basically used that frill a bit like a peacock uses its feathers to sort of show off. And that idea has been gaining more and more traction. Uh, at least in a lot of the ceratopsians, it seems to be the case, because in a lot of other ceratopsians, unlike triceratops, they actually have large holes in their frill, which wouldn't have made them a very good defence. <laughs> mm. um, if you've got the shield with holes in it, it's not <laughs> going to work very well, is it? And, and so, so that dinosaur would be able to pump blood into the, that section to kind of yes. change the, the appearance. Yes, yes. What's called highly vascularized is the technical term for it. And basically what that means is it has a lot of veins in it. And pumping that blood in there could have potentially changed color or it could have done things like, for example, warmed it up and then used it, for example, to sort of show off the animal's prowess in front of another animal. Lots of animals do that today, um, from tiny things like spiders all the way up to things like elephants, which sometimes use their ears as a display. Um, so lots of different animals will use displays to sort of show off to mates. Um, in your opinion, what do you think was the cause of the dinosaurs' extinction? Um, look, there's a multitude of theories as to why the dinosaurs went extinct. Of course, we'll never know unless we have a time machine, but we have good evidence for at least two hypotheses. Uh, one of them was a meteorite impact, which hit the Yucatan Peninsula, so just off um, the base of Mexico. Uh, it's on its eastern coast. There's a large crater there that indicates the large impact from an asteroid sometime about 65 million years ago hit, and that's roughly about the same time that you get with the extinction of the dinosaurs. Wow, I, I didn't even know that, like I always knew the theory of, of uh, a big asteroid or a big rock hitting the Earth, but I never actually knew scientists had an idea of where it would have actually hit. That's amazing. Not only that, we actually have an idea of the size of the asteroid as well. So estimates based on the crater itself give us the size of the asteroid. Uh, some sort of range up to almost 14 kilometres in diameter. So Whoa. this is a large piece of yeah. rock. It's huge. Um, and we also have evidence of, in fact, the, that there was a meteorite impact in some of the North American bone beds that actually traversed the time of the extinction of the dinosaurs. So they actually show us sort of a sequence all the way from sort of the older beds down mm -hmm. low, show us when dinosaurs were around, and the younger beds show us when there were no dinosaurs around. And you can actually see a particular layer in there, one full of a type of element called iridium, which is very common in, in asteroids and meteorites. And so what we find is in that iridium layer, basically that's where dinosaurs all disappear. We also find things like shocked quartz, which happens when you shock particularly silicate rocks. 
they formed a mineral or type of um, material called shocked quartz, which has a very particular pattern inside mm -hmm. it. And that's also caused only by generally meteorites or atomic bombs. And the other thing you find is things like, for example, uh, shellfish or limestone blocks, big blocks the size of houses that have been tipped upside down. So these are blocks of what would have been fossil reefs, particularly at the impact site at the Yucatan Peninsula, yeah. that have been flipped on their head, <laughs> so flipped upside down and sort of tumbled around with a whole bunch of other limestone blocks. And so these would have been fossilised, or what would have been then reefs, that have then been fossilised as sort of blocks that have tumbled down into deeper water deposits. Oh my gosh, I'm just... I'm imagining the scientist's face when they've found this block that's upside down and pointing the opposite direction. It must have confused the hell out of them. Oh, it, it, does, it does, definitely. And in fact, it, meteorite impacts are one of the most notorious for sort of confusing scientists <laughs> because <laughs> you can often find structures that people aren't sure whether they formed naturally geologically, as in just formed through plates colliding and pushing up and down rocks, or whether they formed through impact sites. We have our own examples of that, for example, in Australia, Gauzes Bluff out in the Northern Territory near Alice Springs. Mm -hmm. That's an impact structure, and that shows rocks that have been flipped, again, about the size of cars, on top of their head, and then been fossilised in the surrounding rock. And wow. so that gives us an idea of these guys, how powerful these meteorite impacts would have been. Um, so there is evidence of a meteorite impact, definitely, but there's also evidence of what's called the Deacon Traps. So these are large volcanic areas, particularly in India. And when India collided with Asia, because India used to be its own separate continent, when it collided with the rest of Asia, it formed the Himalayas. And as it did that as well, the volcanoes had basically exploded, causing huge amounts of uh, volcanic materials, like lavas and, and ashes and things, to be ejected into the atmosphere, along with a lot of uh, greenhouse gases. So carbon dioxide, sulfur dioxide, things like this. And both of those can cause things like acid rain, but also global warming. And so we also see evidence at that time of a runaway global warming effect and an acidification of the oceans. And so that potentially could have also led to the demise of the dinosaurs. Is part of the, the appeal of studying dinosaurs and, and that time period that it was just so chaotic and so ever-changing? <laughs> well, actually, rather the reverse. Although there is an appeal to study the extinction of the dinosaurs because, of course, that's quite chaotic. The time of the dinosaurs, what we call the Mesozoic, we actually see, whilst it did have changes, there were large changes, there were also large periods where actually not much happened in terms of not necessarily evolution, animals kept evolving and changing, but the environment actually stayed relatively consistent, more consistent than actually today, and more consistent than the entire period of the mammals in some cases. And so really, it's the, the appeal of it comes from both understanding the times of catastrophism, so times of chaos going on, but also periods of quiet or senescence where you don't actually have a lot of environmental change, but you have a lot of evolutionary change, groups evolving and expanding and moving into what we call new niche spaces, so new environments and new sort of um, types of habitat that they can inhabit. You mentioned earlier on that you, your love of monster movies, including King Kong, is there a, a movie that you could think of that really represents your profession, that really would showcase uh, your reality? 
Um, <laughs> unfortunately, like all jobs, when you put it up on the big screen, it becomes a bit dull and boring. <laughs> um, so I'm not quite sure. Um, I often put it down that maybe the office. <laughs> oh, yep. Okay. Because <laughs> there's a lot of, whilst a lot of the time we see paleontologists in movies getting out there with the Kubras and whips and things, you know, Indiana Jones style, like an archaeologist going out there with a gun and firing at Nazis. Um, the reality of the situation, of course, is that we're scientists, and so we spend a lot of time in offices, or sometimes some, some of us spend a lot of time in labs. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the time we'll do a lot of writing. And so if you look at the amount that's been written on dinosaurs or other fossil animals, the amount of time that people have to sit down and write those things means that 90% of our job is actually sitting in front of a desk. Um, but we do get that lovely 10% where we get to go out into the field and get to see these sort of extraordinary places. But yeah, I often tell people my job's probably closer to the office than to say something like Indiana Jones or Jurassic Park. (laughs) (laughs) I'm devastated to hear you don't have a whip on your desk. (laughs) No, I don't have a whip, although I do have a Nakubra, so maybe that might might make make up for it. (laughs) I'd be worried then for a second. (laughs) I would have thought they would have given you those tools when you uh, finished your studies. Off you go. (laughs) (laughs) No, unfortunately not. Although I do also have a geological hammer, but again, often people misunderstand how to use one of those they often frequently overuse it if you hand a geological hammer to members of the public they often go around smashing up as many rocks as they can see i often tell people i use a brush more than i actually use a hammer (laughs) wow oh yeah just blown their mind by that yeah Mm. i've got one last question for you so you mentioned um earlier that you've got a young son Mm. um how will you introduce the world of dinosaurs and fossils and, and geology to him so my son's only five months old, so it's a, obviously a You've got time. he's a bit later. But, um, <laughs> but he's, he's at a stage where we've had a lot of people give him a lot of dinosaur soft toys and dinosaur books and dinosaur clothes. And so definitely I think that's how he's going to be introduced to them. And I'm sure he'll ask questions as to what those animals actually are that are surrounding him in his cot when he gets a bit older. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but he's also been introduced to the world of other fossils. So one of the things I think that people often uh, misunderstand when they think about fossils is they think dinosaurs, and that's it. That's that's all there is is fossils. There's just dinosaurs. Maybe they might think megafauna if they've sort of learnt a little bit about fossils, but that's about it. But, of course, most animals that we have today also have ancient relatives as well. So things like, for example, uh, crabs, crustaceans, um, things like, for example, insects, things like, for example, clams. In fact, you can find clam fossils that are almost 400 and 80 million years old that look identical to the clams we have today. And so those fossils also tell a story of the evolution of these groups. Whilst, okay, they're not as big or as fancy or as flashy as dinosaurs, they tell you just as interesting stories about how those groups adapted and evolved to change and what features of those groups have been important over time and what allowed them, some of them to survive for so long. Uh, So I think I'll introduce fossils to him that way is by showing him Sites like, for example, all around Sydney, we have fossil sites, particularly on our coastline, where you can find things like fossil clams or fossil snails that are sitting right next to their relatives. <laughs> yeah, okay, wow. So he'll have that, that in-depth knowledge rather than the, the big dinosaurs that I assumed. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I can also show him sites where there's big dinosaurs. I actually find the dinosaurs and, and marine reptiles relatively boring because they're a group that sort of did very well for a short period of time. I say short. 200 million years 
um, <laughs> relatively speaking, of course. Um, they did well for a short period of time. But really, they often take on the shapes or forms of animals we have today. I gave the example of sauropods, the long-necked dinosaurs being a bit like giraffes, or things like ichthyosaurs, for example, which aren't a dinosaur, they're a, a marine reptile, but they look very much like a dolphin. They're very similar in many ways. And so I sort of look at them and go, well, these are just reflections of what we have today. To me, the fascinating animals are the things that don't exist today, things like, for example, trilobites, which, whilst they look a little bit like isopods, a little bit like slaters you find in your garden, they would have lived a very different lifestyle. And some of them have crazy things like horns that come off them like rams, and some of them have long spines that are about three times the length of their body that point out the front of them, all sorts of crazy things. Uh, so those, to me, those are the animals that are very fascinating, things that were doing different things to what the animals that we're doing today. I wanted to thank you for uh, giving me the time of chatting to you and sharing your experience with us. It's been really interesting and, and it's given me a lot of things that I'm going to jump on Google and research now. <laughs> definitely, definitely. <laughs> And we're back from our break. I'm here with Moretta. How are you, Moretta? I'm awesome. How are you? So what did you think of the dinosaur interview? You chose The Office. I know. <laughs> you know what? Um, when I heard that you were interviewing him, I was kind of going through my mind about, oh, you know, what are we going to be watching? You know, what are we going to be talking about mm. afterwards? And I'm not going to lie, The Office didn't even register. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, I thought... You know, Jurassic Park. Yeah. Something along those lines. Something with dinosaurs. Something Night with the museum. monsters. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. But, yeah. So, I think know. that's awesome, though. Well, this is this has been the ongoing theme of the Curious Audience is that we pick people who are just so interesting and we have curiosities about, and I kind of have an idea of what film they're going to pick. And then they pick something left field, and often it's something I haven't seen. Yeah. Well, and, well I mean, you know. Obviously, we've we've watched The Office many oh, yes. times, so that doesn't. Yeah, <laughs> but um, I I kind of like it because you know we we have these assumptions, you know, about what people's life life is like, and then you know we get this complete one eighty, and we get to really kind of dig a bit deeper. It's just exciting to dig a little bit deeper into people's psyche. Yeah, well, I mean, every workplace has those odd characters and even though in the office we have these caricatures or these overemphasized parts of it there's still little bits of pieces we can go okay you know phyllis connects to this person i know and creed connects well hopefully creed connects to no one <laughs> but kevin and He's stanley and yeah so um during our chat today we're, we're going to go through the unsung heroes of the office the the other office members we're going to exclude dwight Michael, Jim, and Pam, because, you know, they're kind of the, the base, the the main cast of the show. We're going to talk about a few of those eccentric characters. The supporting um, players. Yeah, and as we go through, we're going to uh, share some of our own experiences with some of the interesting workplace colleagues we've had. And, um, yeah, hopefully it'll get a few laughs from both of us. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> so let's start off with a clip of the first person. I wake up every morning in a bed that's too small, drive my daughter to a school that's too expensive, and then I go to work to a job for which I get paid too little. But on pretzel day, well, I like pretzel day. 
Mm, everybody loves that smooth velvety. <laughs> I love pretzel day. <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I apologize for this episode. I will be doing a lot of accents. Oh, I can't God. help myself. Yeah. That's... <laughs> can I go now? <laughs> <laughs> no. You can contractually oblige. Contractually? <laughs> on our marriage contract? <laughs> More than that. Oh, okay. Podcast contract above. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, everybody's had that that workplace employee, like, well, not employee, colleague like Stanley, who just is doesn't really want to be there, is always a bit grumpy, just wants to sit there and do their crosswords. <laughs> you know, have their cup of tea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I worked with somebody that was... I, I, I can kind of relate them to Stanley. Not that they um were they they didn't want to be there or um you know that they were just um in it for the paycheck but um funny grumpy like you know those mm-hmm. funny grumpy people that yep. are just like they're just a bit dry and a bit surly but <laughs> you know they love you and you love them and and they're actually more more funny than they realize because they're grumpy yeah and it's they're always I'm, I'm thinking of this one person in particular um but she was an older woman who was exceptionally good at her job but she just didn't take crap mm-hmm. you know she didn't like anything new she didn't like change she she just wanted to come to work, do her job, and go the hell home. <laughs> <laughs> and have her damn pretzel. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There was there was this um there was this one thing that I was trying to get her to do because I was her manager, okay? Okay. And uh, she did not like change, and she's she's just kept telling me she's like Moretta, you know I've been doing this for twenty years. I don't like change. I don't like new things. I'm not gonna remember. So we came up with this strategy where we had I we had ping pong paddles. Okay. And I it was written what I wanted her to do on the ping pong paddle. So I would go on the other side of the workspace <laughs> so that she could see me and just as at the at the moment where I wanted her to do this new skill, I would hold up the ping pong paddle and then she would look Try not to laugh and then do what I've asked. Her to do. <laughs> <laughs> At least she had the eyesight to be able to see it. Oh, barely. <laughs> the thing is, like, she knew what was on the paddle. So okay. I don't even, it could have, you know what? I could have put like some profanity or something <laughs> on the paddle. She would not have known. But um, yeah, funny duck. I absolutely love her. And um, yeah, I miss her. <laughs> her dry grumpiness is actually kind of funny. It certainly is. Okay, let's have a look at our next one. At least once a year, I like to bring in some of my Kevin's famous chili. The trick is to undercook the onions. Everybody is going to get to know each other in the pot. I'm serious about this stuff. I'm up the night before, pressing garlic and dicing whole tomatoes. I toast my own ancho chilies. It's a recipe passed down from Malone's for generations. It's probably the thing I do best. So I've kind of got two colleagues in mind when thinking about Kevin. (laughs) Oh, no. Well, there's two things about Kevin, you know. In this clip, we see him cooking food for the colleagues, and then also you can kind of get a sense of his slow talking. Mm -hmm. So... Slow talking one. I've I've worked in probably two or three places where there is one employee who just talks really slow or really long winded and I'm not very good with those sorts of people. I'm like, get to the point, I know what you're gonna say, move <laughs> along and my face doesn't show kind of 
I'm annoyed or I'm, I'm bored, move on very well. People can see it really easily. Yes. And so I, I, I <laughs> <laughs> so I have to hide that. And the, the moment I remember is like the Christmas party dinner. Christmas party dinner is hinged on who sits either side of you. Yeah. If you, if you have really good people, people who want to have a drink and a party, you're going to have a really good time. And so it's pivotal that you get a good seat. And probably a handful of times I've sat down too early and had the boring person sit right next to me. <laughs> Not boring, the slow talker sit right next to me. And I just sit there all night drinking more than I should because the stories are so slow and boring. <laughs> well, you know what the thing is, though, is I think... I think you get stuck with it because you're non-confrontational. You 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 don't you don't ever look at somebody and go get to the point. <laughs> yeah. Or you're boring. I'm leaving now. <laughs> you know. So yeah, I think I think that you know you do get stuck with those people because they're like, oh, that Luke guy's so nice. He listens to me so well. <laughs> I don't know what a great listener he is. Well, the second part of Kevin is the food. I'm, I'm a teacher in my main job and food seems to be one of the big things like we're going to have a meeting we're going to get together everybody brings some food and it's that sort of small group where you have to try everybody's food mm-hmm. like like you can't just sit there and eat your own little bowl of chips you have to try someone's weird delicacy that they've made from home even though you would never normally eat it in your life it's like Mmm, this is great. Where's my napkin? <laughs> yeah, like a gluten-free vegan frittata. Yeah. yeah. It's like Kevin's chili. I would not eat Kevin's chili, especially <gasps> after it had been on the floor. <laughs> yeah. Well, he came early enough. You wouldn't know. <laughs> Until you got, like, I don't know, a rock or something. <laughs> <laughs> Just some fluff from the carpet. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, who's next? Oh, uh, should we go with a girl? How about Phyllis? Oh, I like Phyllis, yeah. Okay. What's wrong with you? Angela is worse than usual lately, and we have a party to throw. So I googled how to deal with difficult people, and I got all of this. So we're gonna try out some new things today. So how do you feel about the fact that the banner says lunch? I feel angry. Angry at you. Angry at you for doing something stupid. Angry at me for believing you could do something not stupid. Sorry, you feel that way. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, have you had anyone like that in your workplaces? Um, I okay. So, Phyllis is kind of um, she's she's passive. Mm-hmm. She's she's a little bit sickly sweet, quiet, reserved. Yeah, yep. yeah. Um, she she kind of almost has this innocence about her mm-hmm. until she starts in, you know, talking about her romantic. Oh, yeah. Encounters, and then you kind of go, oh, no, 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 no. But I think also that Angela has it out for her. Like, you you only have to look at, like, some of the party planning committee meetings where they're talking about what color they want to pick. And Phyllis says, I I, I thought you said green was whorish. And Phyllis is wearing, like, an orange top. Oh, no. Orange is whorish. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Angela's out to get her. Well, there's always that, you know, that's, that's another workplace theme is that, a lot of the time, you know, there's the, the office bully. Mm. I, I didn't want to use the word bully. I wanted to use the word shithead, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> family show. Yeah. <laughs> well, not anymore. But... Yeah. We lost that hashtag. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know what? I, I've known people that have been kind of passive aggressively like Phyllis, mm-hmm. you know, like that sickeningly sweet, but kind of 
a jerk underneath, you know, yeah. in the words. But no, I don't think I've ever really worked with somebody that's that's um, Phyllis-esque. No, I don't think I've ever had that uh, to that degree. I've definitely worked with someone who'd been more like an Angela. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, not, not really a Phyllis. But it's interesting, like you look at how Jim treats Phyllis and his style of personality brings her out yeah. a lot more and she has that confidence. I think also because she's more of a mother figure and so she is able to kind of be above Jim because of that, that role of that matriarch, mm. you know? Well, and I mean, you know, throughout the, what, nine or ten seasons, how yeah. many was it? I think it's um, nine. Uh, she went through quite a confidence revolution, mm. you know? I mean, um, she was quite, you know, quiet and mousy and almost pathetic in the early days. And then, um, you know, as the series went on and different events happened and she was put in positions where she had to kind of step up, um, I think she slowly gained some confidence. And then, yeah, when Bob entered the picture, Bob Vance, Vance Refrigeration, <laughs> um, yeah, things things got a little bit um, a, a little bit more stable. And, and, I mean, you know, Phyllis from season one wouldn't be like, you know, having sex with her husband in a yeah, bathroom of mm. a restaurant. And yeah. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's have a look at the next one. We've got two more to go. We've Sounds got good. Creed and then Andy. So let's have a look at Creed. Fantastic. Bo body. Bo body. What does the first B stand for? What are we doing? We're making acronyms. Okay. What does the first B stand for? Um, business. I like it. <laughs> I Bow body. Bow body. I love I love this moment. This is one of my favorite <laughs> moments because I have been to so many staff meetings where there'll be some leader standing out the front doing some thing and you turn to your colleague and you're like what 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 did he say? Yeah. What? And like they're doing something that's just trying to be creative, trying to be different. And, and it's just the like, mark entirely. Why, why is he drawing a triangle with a circle? Yeah. What? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I wish my bosses were always like Creed's enthusiasm. Like, you just give yeah. an answer, I like it. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Well, I, I really liked, and it doesn't, it's not depicted in this scene, but I'm pretty sure it's in the same episode where he gets promoted to temporary manager. Mm-hmm. He drives up in his, <laughs> in his car, he parks, and then he throws his keys as if to a valet but nobody's standing there but he says keep it running keep it running he's gonna be there for eight hours at work keep it running it's just so freaking bizarre just no, i wonder how much of that was improv like from mm. what i've heard of, of the actor who played creed like it, a lot of it was improv just insert funny thing that's fantastic yeah yeah, yeah. No, um, i don't think of you know anyone who's that crazy I, I worked with somebody that was creepy like that. Okay. Yeah. Turned up to a Halloween party covered in blood and, oh, it's Halloween. No, more like, <laughs> more like one of those people that just talks really softly without a ton of inflection. Okay. And, you know, they kind of have one of these voices. Okay. When they're speaking to you. Could be a serial killer. It's entirely possible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Like, he was a nice guy. I mean, he didn't kill me. Uh, you know, I, I never felt like, you know, I was, I, I never felt like I was afraid for my life or anything like that, but it was just that air of creepy, okay. you know, yep, just yeah. like, uh, no, you can't 
lock me to my car. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that Creed and Creepy are not too many letters apart. Well, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Okay. Let's go to our last one to finish this up. Ew. Where are you going? You want me to come with? Oh. Just listen, I forgot to tell you the plan for the Saturday. You, me, bar, beers, buzzed, wings, shots, drunk, waitresses, hot, football, Cornell Hofstra, slaughter, then quick nap at my place and we hit the tin sound. No, I don't want to do any of that. Duh. Which is why I was joking about doing no, it. Just stop, stop. Just stop doing it. You're going to drive me crazy. Fine, I'll just go sit at my desk and be quiet. Sorry I annoyed you with my friendship. Well, that was Andy. And, and I mean, that was early Andy, too. Oh, he was dog. still annoying all the way through. But oh, yeah. Yeah, there's just that that colleague who just wants to be more than just friends. Like, more than workplace proximity colleagues. Pro- workplace proximity associates. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, we're, we're going to a different show here. I know. Same, uh, same writers. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, look... I don't look at Andy as the one that's desperate to be friends. I look at the, I, I kind of relate or not relate to, but, um, I'm familiar with the Andy that makes everything a big deal, makes everything mm. dramatic and bigger than it has to be. Um, I, I come from a background of a lot of like community theater and I did theater in college. So, um, to, to say that I've worked with, uh, a lot of dramatic minded people is probably an understatement okay um yes when when you see a show where they kind of make fun of theater and uh the people that participate in theater um theater people just kind of look at that and go oh yeah yeah no that's that's about right (laughs) (laughs) so um yeah that's that's who i relate to is you know where you just randomly break out into song or you know, <laughs> oh, I just saw you roll your eyes uh, because you're like, oh, God, I married in. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, she hasn't done that yet. Oh, no, I randomly break out into song. You've, you've heard me with our kid. Oh, yeah, but he's there. If it was just you on your own, it would be a completely different story. Yeah, no, I hide that side. <laughs> Look, you've never made a ringtone of yourself singing six different parts in a cappella. No, I think that's a line. But you know what? You've now got the equipment that I could. Hide equipment. <laughs> <laughs> Note to self. Uh, look, I, I don't really have an Andy anything like that. I, I, I probably relate a tiny bit to Andy in that um, when I first start a job, I find somebody who I really like and I kind of... The only word I can think of is latch onto them a little bit. You know, <laughs> like whenever you have lunch, I sit next to that person. Whenever I have a staff meeting, sit next to that person because you build up a, a rapport and it's just easy. Sure. And you can meet people through that. Um, I've never punched a wall like Andy has or anything like oh, that. Oh, that's so important. We're safe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I will say, I've had an employer who's kind of like Michael in the indecisiveness that he is as a boss. Uh-huh. I, when I was living in Canada, I worked at a turf farm and we would drive around on quad bikes and we would move the the um, watering lines each way so that the fields would get watered. Um, it was a pretty easygoing job because you just... You just had to have the timing right. But at the end of a 12 or 13 hour shift, it would get to almost sundown and we'd have to start 
uh, prepping all the all the lines for the next day. And I'm quite an organized person. I'm probably organized to the extreme. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. The guy who was the boss was not organized at all. And while while he was while we were working, he was up in his house just chilling out, and we would call him on the radio. And so I'd call him at about you know six thirty, knowing that we were supposed to finish at seven. Like, hey, hey, Ryan, when do you when do you want us to start? You know, moving the lines into final positions. And he'd get on, and he was the slowest talker. And I'm sorry, I'm going to do a Canadian. I'm going to try. But he'd get on, he'd go like, uh, Maybe we can get... No, that sounds a bit Western. He'd be like, maybe we could do one more round. I don't know. Like, he's just so wishy-washy. And I'm like, just just let me do it, right? Just, just, just... But the the big, every single radio thing would be like, Ah... Some sort of uselessness. And after 12 or 13 hours in the hot sun, sitting on a quad bike, hmm. you're like, tell me what to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you want, boss? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm gone at seven. Yeah. Yeah. So that was it. So uh, how do you think all of these characters relates to our paleontologist working at the Australian Museum? Well, I'm curious uh, because, you know, there's obviously a lot of administration that goes on with running a museum. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I kind of think it's it's a it's a um, it's an accurate depiction, you know, w- when when you really think about it. Right. It's uh, yeah, I, I think it's uh, pretty perfect, actually. And I think it's really relatable to a lot of people's office spaces mm. um, around the world, really. And you would think probably working in, in that sort of environment, you'd have a lot of really eclectic personalities because each person is an expert in their field mm-hmm. and so you might have kind of almost like a, a more adult grown-up version of the big bang theory where one person's interested in geology and one person's interested in paleo, uh, uh, yeah, paleontology, paleontology and you know all the different things that are housed within that museum and everybody's so passionate about it and trying to get funding for projects and so it's an interesting team environment, I would imagine. Definitely. Yeah. You know, it's it's a similar uh, thing to when you were talking to Dr. Diamond and and he Head compared of the his Foundation, to yeah. yeah, and he compared his team to the Avengers. So you know, it just comes out of left <laughs> field, but it's yeah. so freaking accurate. Yeah. Yeah, love it. I think that's really cool. Yeah. Well, folks, that's it for us chatting about our, our TV show that mirrored our guest today. Uh, next week's episode is going to be something completely different. Most of us are pretty much stuck in, in uh, self-isolation or social distancing, so we haven't been able to get out to interview people. And, See movies. And <laughs> movies and things like that. So Murder and I are going to be doing a different show next week where we're going to call it The Binge. And we're going to be choosing shows that you might have watched during this quarantine period or during this coronavirus period and we're going to do sort of a mock debate about it where we pick oh, our... Oh, no, it's not a mock debate. It's a full-on <laughs> debate. I'll fight you. We're going to pick our favorite episode, the one that we believe is the best episode of the series, and put our case to you. Moretta's going to have a go. I'm going to have a go. And then we're going to leave it to our audience on social media to decide who was the winner. What is the best show? What is the best episode of that show? And we're also going to take requests from you. What shows should we... Um, debate about and find out what the best episode is. Sounds like a plan. Excellent. Looking forward to it. The Office was produced by 
Ben Silverman, Greg Daniels, Ricky Gervais, Stephen Merchant, Howard Klein, Ken Quapis, Paul Leisenstein, Jennifer Shillot, BJ Novak, Mindy Kalin, Brett Forrester, Dan Sterling. For NBC Universal Television, all clips used in this podcast are credited entirely to them. Join us next week for the first episode of The Binge. And if you feel like it, don't forget to leave us a review. We appreciate all the feedback. See you then.